Does the world really need another podcast? There are over 5 million podcasts available globally with 70 million episodes that you can catch in 150 languages. So why go to the trouble of adding yet another? In Luke chapter 5, when Jesus finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. So if one heart can be touched, if one mind can be renewed, and if just one life could be transformed, then I think it's worth it. This is one more cast. Hey everyone, this is Neil Mack. My wife Sonia and I lead the Young Marriage Group at Calvary Tabernacle. If you're between the ages of 1835 and you're married, we'd love to have you join our group. We have classes every Wednesday evening in the portico at Calvary Tabernacle. We also have several fun events throughout the year. Uh, sometimes pop-up events, sometimes events that we plan for months in advance. Either way, whether you come to our class or you check out one of our events, we would always love to have you join us. These next three podcasts are going to be on the topic of emotional quotient. And these classes took place on Wednesday evenings in the portico at Calvary Tabernacle. The classes were taught by Reverend J.C. Burkhead. J.C. has a master's in clinical counseling from Grace College. She's also an adjunct instructor at Indiana Bible College. She's a guidance counselor at Calvary Christian School. She's also a mental health counselor at Calvary Tabernacle. She's well qualified and you'll hear in her session, she has a passion for emotional quotient, helping people understand interpersonal relationships and connectivity. And she's absolutely a woman of God. We hope you enjoy these sessions. If you want to see what my classes have been like this week at IBC, it's a lot like this. This is what has been happening all week long. So, self-awareness, self-regulation, and motivation. So we kind of talked about motivation, and knowing what motivates you is what helps you to keep going. So we've talked about the different kinds of motivation and how to be more aware of that in your own life. To know, can you build that motivation up and how do you do so? Those are the only intra-personal skills that we're talking about, meaning just kind of what deals with you. Next, we're moving, oh look, isn't this so cute? I'm glad you had that reminder to allow yourself to grow. So, we're moving on to what we call interpersonal skills, right? The first one we talked about was empathy. Kind of being able to not necessarily put yourself in someone else's shoes, but understand their perspective. Not just saying, okay, how would I feel if I was in that situation, but how do they feel in their situation? But we're gonna talk today about social skills. Now, empathy and social skills are those interpersonal skills. The rest is kind of for you to do on your own. These involve other people. So it can be kind of a challenge. And a lot of times people thrive in one area over the other. 
They're really good at knowing their own emotions, their own thoughts, right? And if we're talking about emotional intelligence, that's not only controlling your own feelings and behaviors, but also controlling other people's feelings and behaviors. Not in a manipulative way, but just in a way that you could take charge of a group or, or know how to, to build buy-in from people. So sometimes people are really good at just handling their own stuff, but when it comes to adding another person in the mix, it's really challenging. Or some people are really good when it comes to just talking to people, but when it comes to their own self-awareness, they like to push that kind of back. But if you have a high IQ, you're kind of working to build all of these elements. So the first element that I really wanna talk about in social skills is something called reflective listening. Reflective listening. It's listening to hear and understand, not listening to respond. Not listening to, to know what you're gonna say, but just simply to understand. And that is a lot harder than it sounds. It sounds super easy, but it's not. It's really not. But it's something that we have to learn because pastor always says this, you have two ears and one mouth for a reason, right? You've gotta learn to listen to people just to understand them. Sometimes I think when someone's talking, we're just thinking about what we're gonna say next or what is my point gonna be? I know Anthony's sitting over there thinking, you gotta learn this, and I do. Because I'm always thinking, I'm gonna respond with something good, all right? But having to slow down and just say, okay, am I hearing you well is important. So this sounds so simple, but it is just a, a skill that's hard to do, all right? It's called reflecting content or reflecting feelings. So when someone's telling you something, you just say back what they just said. That's it. Sounds so simple. Sounds so dumb, honestly. You're like, that's not a conversation. But when you start doing that, they start giving you more and more information. You're not entering into a conversation that's just going in nowhere. They're giving you more information. And you know that you're understanding what they mean because that can be a huge challenge is that somebody can say something and you think you understand, but you're wrong. Your filter is wrong. That's not what they meant. So if I just simply repeat back to you what I think you're saying, you can correct me. You can say, oh no, I didn't mean that, I meant this. But you gotta slow yourself down and say, hey, I'm gonna talk later. <laughs> it's gonna be my turn in a little bit. And there's somebody in this room that's really good at it. And it's Sister Mac. I don't know if you know that you do this, I don't know if you're, you are aware, if you try this, but I heard her do it like last week. Brother Mac and I are talking and she's standing there listening and she says, so what I hear you both saying is, and then repeats it back. And I've heard her say this multiple times. So what I hear you saying is this. And that is a great phrase that you can just add to your vocabulary. What I hear you saying is this. I'm hearing this. And it's giving the other person an opportunity to say, nope, nope, that's not what I meant. I meant this other thing. Right? But too often, we're already grabbing what we think and what we understand as what they're saying, and we've got to slow down and say, okay, is my interpretation correct? Is how I'm hearing you actually accurate? And just reflecting that back to them. Here's what I'm hearing you say. Is this right? So that's just a really basic thing, but I promise when you start to actually look through your conversations with people, you recognize that you're not doing it very often. <laughs> You're not actually listening to, to hear and understand. You're listening to speak. And so we've got to watch it and we've got to learn to listen to hear. Hmm. Listen to hear. It sounds obvious, but it's really not. It's really not what we do. 
So one of the biggest points of just having social skills is having charisma. Or as the young people say, riz, right? <laughs> charisma is just being able to put people at ease. And I've seen people with this personality. I don't have one of those. But, and I'm just like, wow, they can walk in a room and everyone's just kind of at ease. Anybody they talk to, people are just comfortable talking to them or just being around them. And really, if we're talking about emotional intelligence, if that's understanding the needs that underlie other people's emotions, meeting those needs, controlling the environment, that's charisma, right? That's being able to put people at ease. There's, and there's an art to it. There's a finesse to it. So here's, the, here's what I think is a problem. Lots of communication skills, lots of tips, advice is written by extroverts. It's true, thank you, it is. And it's basically telling people to not be themselves. That you gotta put yourself out there. You gotta smile big. And it is impossible to be charismatic, to be sociable, to connect if you're not yourself. It's impossible to do that. So if I'm going through all these things, I'm not ever gonna tell you to not be yourself. Because we're really good at picking up on fake. People are really good at sniffing out inauthenticity. Like, we can smell that. People can tell that. And people that are extroverted, confident people, the ones who are more dominant, um, they're making decisions. Those are the people that are heard a lot. And I think this is a huge problem. Not that it's bad to hear extroverts. But we can have super talented, very intelligent people, and their ideas are not getting heard. Right? They're focused on, on being the best in whatever field they are, being the best graphic designer, being the best musician, being the best, I don't know, author, being the best at whatever they're doing, but they can't share that talent. And it's incredibly frustrating that the smartest people I know don't get adoption on their own ideas. Um, and they can't get people to buy in because really the best story wins. That's just the truth. I used to think the best idea wins, that if you have a good idea, then it's gonna speak for itself and people will just be able to see that. People will be wise and they'll just know. And that's not so. You can have a great idea, but if you can't get people to connect to it, then they're not gonna follow through with it. If you can't get people to, to buy in or get on board with your ideas or what you think, then you're gonna be pushed to the side. So, uh, there's a book that I was um, reading not too long ago called The Psychology of Money. And the author basically says that this, the best story wins. And he's talking about Ken Burns, the documentarian, and really what Ken Burns did is he just shared stories that other people had already shared. That other people had already written, he just took these boring stories and he put them together in this like cinematic, artful way and people loved it. And people were like watching about the Civil War and, and they had never done that before. And so if you put together the best story possible, people buy into it. This is not being fake. This is just knowing that like, hey, I've got to get buy-in. I've got to be able to connect to people. You can have a really great idea. You can be incredibly intelligent. And if you're not able to connect to people, if you're not able to have those social skills, then it's going to go to waste, right? Your idea will die with you. So how many of you have ever heard of Ring Doorbell? All right. So. Ring doorbell and saw millions of doors across America, and Jamie Smirnoff went on Shark Tank and he pitched his idea. And um, behavior analysis have studied 
his pitch on Shark Tank, and they've narrowed it down. He failed, by the way. <laughs> they did not, the sharks didn't get it. They asked terrible questions. It was a horrible failure. All right, and behavior analysis have said in the first seven seconds, he failed. Later on, like six months later, he gets an investment from Shaq, and then later Amazon acquired it for over a billion dollars. And he had this great idea, but the way that he pitched it was a failure. So, why do some people fail? And I read this study about all of these different pitches on Shark Tank, and they narrowed it down to one thing that they call the question inflection. We decide how confident somebody is in the first 200 milliseconds of hearing them speak. That's terrifying to me, okay? <laughs> because I'm like, right, they see right through me, right? We don't like to buy from, hear from, be around people who are not confident. We just don't. So the brain automatically hears the, this accidental question inflection. So when he started, he said, hi, my name is Jamie. And he goes up at the end. It's the same as if you answer the phone and you say, hello, instead of hello. You, you hear it all the time. And in fact, since I was researching this, I was thinking back to the last two lessons, and I think I did the whole lessons that way. So that's probably why you hated them, <laughs> right? It's, hi, I'm gonna talk to you about emotional intelligence. And it sounds like I don't really know what I'm talking about. Because when your brain hears that, it flips from listening to scrutinizing. Because liars use the question inflection. They ask their lie, like, do you believe this? Do you believe what I'm saying to you? So like if you've played the game two truths and a lie, most often the lie ends with an inflection up. Sales calls, the ones that get pushed back, have the question inflection on their asking price. Hey, I'd love to work with you. My price is $5,000 instead of my price is $5,000. So it's confidence. Why am I saying all this? Do I want you to all be salespeople? Sure, if you're selling the right thing. Yeah, great. But really because of this, because of micro cues, because your brain is so powerful and so quick that you have this amazing superpower where you read cues all the time. We've been taught to ignore cues, right? But you can tell so much stuff from nonverbal, from tone, from inflection, that your brain is so powerful that it is working, I use this analogy, it's working like a filing cabinet. Like you're going through your life, you're taking in all this information and your brain is just sorting it as what is important and what isn't important. And the way that your, your neural pathways are wired changes that. So if you're a more neurotic person, you're gonna be looking for dangers everywhere you go because your brain is saying that's what's important to us. What's well, the same with micro cues? Your brain is looking for what is important and you're constantly reading between the lines. This can be good and it can be bad. So we gotta learn how to control it. We can't let our brains control us, we gotta control them. So there was this study, it's a little gross, so I'm sorry. There's a study at Stanford that had these two groups of people and they put sweatsuits on them, as in suits that collected sweat. Yeah, 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 <laughs> we love this. And the first group was told to go run on a treadmill, and the second group was sent to go skydiving for the first time. Would you guys choose, who would choose the first group? You'd be like, if I, who would choose the second? Like, I'd rather go skydiving. Hmm, interesting, uh, that's irrelevant, I just was curious, <laughs> right? So, 
They sent them to exercise. They sent them to jump out of a plane. They collected their sweat and they collected samples of sweat that were different. All right, they had exercise sweat and then they had stress sweat from the fear, right? So then they took this sweat and they had unsuspecting participants come in and they came into their lab to smell these samples. So they put their participants in an fMRI machine. So they put electrodes on their head. Well, they put them in the fMRI machine and then they had them sniff and smell. They had no idea what they were smelling. But when people smelled the stress sweat, when they smelled the fear sweat, their amygdala in the brain lit up. So the amygdala is the brain structure in which you process emotions, where you process fear, really. So what does this even mean? That somehow they caught the emotion. That somehow fear was contagious. And people catch emotions from other people. I think that's because, as I've said before, God made you for relationships. God made you for connection. And so in that, your brain is even working to say like, hey, when you're around things, you're gonna catch that. So people catch what you've got. So charismatic people, you show up, you make people better. You make people feel better. You make people feel more confident. And how does that work? Because if you are better, then you make other people better. That's not a cliche thing. There's actually science to back that up, to say that the more you work on yourself, the more you actually can help other people. The more you take time to work on, on how you feel about yourself, the more you can actually influence other people in that way. The more time that you spend on intentionality of how do I put people at ease, the more you're, you're going to do that, right? So, but here's my problem, is that anytime you read anything about confidence, they just say the same cliche things, like love yourself, smile more, like stand up straighter. Like it's not, like it's, it doesn't feel helpful, at least not to me. So I like to think things uh, more like methodically. I like to know, I like to have practical tips. So I'm gonna share that with you. This is not, this may not work for you. So take it and, or leave it, I don't care. Right? But if we're talking about confidence, <clears throat> really <laughs> control is the back door to confidence. Because if you feel like you're in control, you could feel more confident. If you feel like you know what you're doing or how you're interacting with people, you can be more confident. There's two parts. Now, I want you to believe in yourself. Okay? I want you to see the value that you have. But here's the other part. How do you match your communication to that? How do you match your communication to the lack of confidence in yourself? Because that could be transmitted onto your ideas. So how do we, how do we get those two to kind of come together? Again, everything, well, not everything, but most things out there are just kind of ambiguous about boosting your self-confidence, right? But if we're talking about control, being the back door into confidence, then there's some things that you can control in your interactions with people. So if I can control things in my interactions with people, I can gain more confidence. And as we said a long time ago, you gain confidence, people like you more, people like you more, you gain more confidence, it's a great cycle, right? So we just gotta get into it. So the first thing that you can control is social intention and social energy. All right, so how many introverts do I have in the room? You know you're an introvert. How many extroverts do I have in the room? 
Do I have any ambiverts in the room? Ambiverts are always forgotten. They are. But did you know that 82% of people are actually ambiverts? Yeah. That 8 out of 10 people are ambiverts. Somebody's lying in this room. No, I'm just kidding. We just don't know about it very much. Because <clears throat> true introverts get their energy from only being alone. Right? That's the only place. So on a good day, they want to be alone. On a bad day, they want to be alone. Yeah. True extroverts only get their energy from being with other people. So on a good day, I want to celebrate with other people. On a bad day, I want to commiserate with other people. Right? <laughs> that, that's a true extrovert. All right? 82% of people are ambiverts, and ambiverts are able to flip into introversion or extroversion based on their goals. All right? It's actually a really cool thing. And I would say most of you are probably ambiverts, but I'm not going to look you in the eye. Just you can decide that. Okay? So if you don't have a social goal, then you're not in control. This can sound a little boring, and I don't mean to suck the fun out of every social interaction you have. Okay? Actually, that could be your goal. All right? You just got to figure out your goal. <laughs> so kind of like the motivation part, if you know what's motivating you, then find that in whatever you're doing. The same for social interactions. All right? If you know your social goal, then go to find that. All right? So for example, if I'm going to this evangelism outreach event, what's my social goal? I want to find three new connections to people who have never been to Calvary before. That's my goal. Then my ambivert gets flipped into extroversion because of the social goal, the event. All right? That way, the event is less draining for you and it value tags for you. Now you know. And here's why it, it, some of you are like, that sounds so draining. Well, here's why. Because you can narrow down and conserve your energy based on your goal. So if I'm going to this outreach event, I know I want to make these three new connections. I'm not going to waste my energy. Waste sounds so negative. I'm not going to use my energy on making small talk with people I already know. I'm not going to plan the next Young Marrieds event at this because that's not my social goal right now. Not that I can't do that some other time. And not that I can't say hi to my friends, but I'm going to conserve my energy because I know I don't got a whole lot. Right? So I've got my social goal. I'm not going to waste any energy. And you can hack any social situation and you can monitor your own social battery. You can maintain that because you're maximizing your time with people that actually fuel and meet that goal. All right? So there's kind of this crazy study that um, kind of studied 11 companies, thousands of employees, and they found that the number one indicator of performance is, ready for it? The person you sit next to. Who you sit next to. Because low performers are contagious. That if you sit next to a low performer, then it lowers the performance of those nearby by 35%. And high performers are also contagious. So the lowest and the highest performers are contagious. So I guess the question is, is you've got to just decide, where do, where do I think that I am in that? And, and it depends on what I'm doing, right? So if I'm bad at something, this is just actually real life for me. If I'm bad at something, I'm going to go sit next to the high performer, right? Because I know I'm not, if I sit next to the low performer, I'm just going to still be bad. So I find the highest performer, and I'm going to go sit next to them. 
in that staff meeting, in, in th that you know planning meeting, whatever it is, I'm sitting next to the person I know is gonna do really good at it. I know the person I know that's gonna be able to be a high performer in that. What is it, how does this even apply to our lives in general? Well, truly, who you spend your time around, you become. So being able to pull up your phone, pull up your calendar and say, okay, what is that thing in my calendar that I am dreading? What is the thing that I am just like, man, I cannot, that's gonna drain me. Then maybe take some time to evaluate it and say, okay, do I have that in my social battery to use? Do I have that? Is that really going to propel me forward? Maybe, maybe not, you decide that, right? The second part of confidence that you can control is being captivating. This is not easy, okay? So you're like, okay, whatever. You're not gonna prove me anything, okay. Here's the thing. When you think of somebody who's captivating or the life of the party, each of you have a different idea in your head of who that is. A lot of times you think the life of the party is the funniest person or the loudest person or the one who's like having the time of their life, right? That that feels like that's gotta be charisma. That the person who is like telling all the stories and everybody's paying attention to, they're the most charismatic. They're the life of the party. That's just one flavor of charisma. Because if I was going into a party, that's not the person I'm looking for, really. Because I'm a weirdo and I love deep, long conversations that last too long, that are about meaning and like, like uh, that's just who I am. I wanna know all of these horrible, dark secrets that you have. <laughs> no, not really, sort of, all right? But that, that's who I am. That's my flavor of charisma. So if we're in a good conversation, one that we really enjoy, it's going to look different for everybody in this room. Well, maybe you share traits with other people. That's fine. But it looks different because you all like different things. Okay? I love mint chocolate chip ice cream. Some of you don't like mint and chocolate together at all. Okay? Same with charisma. We like different things. We think different things are enjoyable. But there is one thing that stays the same, that when you are having a good conversation, there are three chemicals that are flowing through your body, oxytocin, dopamine, and serotonin. Your goal from now on is to go out there and create that mixture in other people, that you can go around and give that to other people. So let's break this down. Dopamine is excitement. So you're just creating excitement in somebody. So you ask about exciting things. So you have to break kind of social scripts. Not asking, what do you do? I hate, I hate that question. <laughs> I hate it. Almost as much as I hate how's work going because it is so terrible for charisma. It is. Let, let me ask you why. Because when someone asks you, what do you do? Your brain is on autopilot. You have heard that question so many times before. What do you do? But really, I think the question is asking something different. Side note, I think it's asking, what are you worth? Not even, not even just monetarily, but where's your social standing? How, can, how, how could I connect with you? Do I even want to connect with you? So for me, I love what I do. That might be an exciting question. But for somebody who isn't defined by their job, all right, or they don't like what they do, it's demoralizing. 
right? You are shutting them down. It's a horrible thing to do to them. What do you do? But they hate their job, okay? Or they're scared they're about to lose their job. Or they're really stressed because they have something really important coming up, all right? You're not giving them dopamine. You're not exciting them. In fact, you're giving them cortisol, and now they're stressed, all right? We don't want to do that. <laughs> we don't want to give that to anybody. So just let's go on a diet, all right? No more asking that question. Instead, ask them something more exciting. Are you working on anything exciting lately? That sounds so foreign to us because we're so used to the what do you do question. But to say, hey, are you working on anything exciting lately? It's really safe. Because it's not too deep. It's not like, what are your hopes and fears? <laughs> right? <laughs> You're not getting weird. Really, this whole lesson is about don't be weird. <laughs> but if you ask them, are you doing anything exciting lately? You're giving them permission to tell you what they do if they want. Or they could say, I planted a garden this weekend. Well, not this weekend, but. So giving them dopamine, <laughs> it's a complicated chemical, all right? But Dr. John Medina found that dopamine is actually chemically memorable. So it's like a post-it when you trigger dopamine in someone. Dopamine is linked to highly addictive drugs. That's why someone who's been addicted to drugs, they see their dealer in the grocery store and they get a dopamine hit, right? Because they, it's, it makes it memorable. So if you give someone a dopamine hit, if you bring up something exciting, guess what? You're memorable. They remember you. How cool is that? You can kind of like just hack this. That, that excitable feeling, it's now associated with you, right? I'll tell you somebody who's really good at this. Jaden Stumbo is really good at this. She doesn't know she is, <laughs> but she is because she doesn't ask social script questions. She asks, hey, are you doing something fun this weekend? Or did you do anything fun last weekend? Because you can ask them positive, exciting questions and now they're excited. Now they want to talk to you more, right? That's the goal in interactions, not small talk, right? Big talk, right? Make them feel big, make them feel positive. Dopamine, exciting. Oxytocin, all right? Oxytocin is a feeling of like when you fell in love. Right? But really, it's, I really like this person. I really feel like they're, they're paying attention to me. I feel like they're connecting. When you make eye contact with someone and keep it, you're building oxytocin. Their brain is releasing oxytocin. That's why eye contact is important. I know people put that in the how to be confident, eye contact. No, but you're actually kind of controlling their brain in a weird way. <laughs> you know. So if you have a problem with eye contact, work on it. Because you can release this feeling in other people that says, they like me. They like me. Serotonin is a sense of belonging in very, very, very basic terms. Is to say that like, hey, I, I belong here. Right? And if you can somehow give that to people or their brain is triggered in a way that it sends those kinds of chemicals then um, really you're a way more memorable and interesting person and they feel way better about themselves too, right? So here are three phrases to help you. The first one, I was just thinking about you. So this is a gift you can give to people. If you think about them, tell them. I know that sounds so, so crazy, but we're thinking about people all the time. We're always thinking about people. <laughs> so when you think of someone, 
tell them, text them immediately. Hey, I was just thinking about you because I saw this book I think you'd like, All right? I have a friend who our entire text thread is just us sending those personalized license plates to each other, All right? Because if you think about someone, tell them. Or if you see them again, tell them, hey, I was just thinking about you. Do you know how great that feels? Because you know if I was standing here and I said, hey, I was just thinking about you. You want to know what, I, what I'm going to say next. You want to know. I've already bought you <laughs> in a weird way. <laughs> Not to be weird. <laughs> but I hooked you. Hey, I was just thinking about you. They're like, I'm, I'm so special right now. You were thinking about me, right? Even if it's, it's whatever. I'm not telling you to lie to people, okay? All right? But when you notice, hey, I was thinking about somebody, tell them. Tell them. The next thing is, you were saying something. So have you ever been in a conversation where somebody comes up, interrupts you, or even at dinners, the waiter comes up, you're interrupted? This is the best thing that you can say to somebody is say, hey, you were just saying something. Please finish your thought. All right? Really, what this is, is being more interested in people and showing it. Saying, hey, fit, please finish your thought. You were saying something. Who in here loves to be interrupted? Anybody? No. No, you hate it. I know. We all hate it. We all hate to be interrupted. So letting people have that time to say, hey, not only did I hear what you were saying, I noticed you were interrupted and I want you to continue. It can be really powerful. So don't compliment the tall guy on being tall. <laughs> this is so annoying, all right? Because tall people are always, always told they're tall. They know. They know they're tall, right, Luke? Oh, uh, okay, compliment Luke, all right? Give authentic compliments, but unique ones, all right? Again, I'm not telling you to lie to people. Be authentic in your compliments. but. If they're saying something unique, you are so interesting, all right? You're so interesting. You always have the most random facts, all right? Or if they make you laugh, you always make me laugh. You're so funny, all right? Or if they're having some sort of deep conversation, you always make me think, right? It applies to anyone, really. Just be, be authentic, but be unique. The secret, really, to any of these is to be more interested. Not to be more interesting, be more interested, right? I know we we're talking about empathy and about how like you have to have a service orientation. You have to be looking towards the other person, but this is really the key. If you wanna be interesting, be interested, right? Now, these aren't just lines to feed you, but the work is knowing when the right moment is. It's kind of like highlighting. If you're reading and you highlight a key phrase, if you highlight the whole page, the highlighting counts for nothing, right? It's the same thing with any social connection. If you do it at the wrong time, it's nothing. <laughs> All right, so knowing when to do it is, is key. But if, if you're like, ah, but when is that? Just start practicing. You'll know when it's wrong, trust me. <laughs> right? So there are three stages of connection. All right, Dan McAdams just kind of wrote this, a book about this, um, and it's really interesting. There are three, I said stages, but really they're steps. You have to go through each one. You have to go through them consecutively in order to connect with somebody. The first is, General concerns, general traits, occupation, hometown, family status. All right, so I know that I just said, don't ask them what they do, all right? Yes, be exciting, don't be weird, okay? So 
if, if I ask, hey, did you do anything fun this past weekend? I'm going to find out if they have kids or not, most likely, right? I'm going to know. Like, they're going to tell me. I don't have to say, do you have kids? <coughs> like, I can be exciting. I can make them excited and have this conversation to get to, to know their kind of general concerns. The second is personal concerns. This is a big bucket. Goals, motivations, fears, personality. So here's what I want you to do just for a few moments. Pull out your phone or a piece of paper. And I want you to write down five to 10 people you interact with the most. All right, it's okay if you didn't make all 10, just a few people. Okay. Now, you ask yourself two questions. Do you know what keeps them up at night? Like if they're worried about something, if they're stressed, do you know what it, it would be? And then the second thing, do you know what wakes them up in the morning? Do you know what motivates them? If you know the answers to those two questions, you're on level two. If you don't, you're still on level one, right? So that's level two. That's knowing if, if you know somebody. Level three is one that, at least to Dan McAdams, he thinks that most people don't get to. In fact, even married people don't get to sometimes. And that is the self-narrative. Most people stay on level two because level three is very hard. This is why people feel disconnected and they don't realize why. Because your self-narrative is how you make sense of your journey. How you explain your actions, how you explain your personality, what forces or experiences shaped you into who you are. And it's really important to know your own self-narrative. And I think that's probably why people don't get theirs because they don't even know their own. So let me kind of give you an example, or I'll give you three examples of common narratives or sometimes we call them archetypes so the first is like the hero narrative this is a pretty common one it's just a story you tell yourself right the hero would say i've had a lot of challenges i've had a lot of struggles a lot of dark times but through smarts through my own hard work i overcame them and they have this in every area of their life things were hard but i pushed through it's the hero and some people might think that this is like egotistical. And no, it's, it's not really. They're saying that, yeah, the hard times were hard. And it may have even been my own fault. Like, like I'm not perfect. I had hard times and I, redeem, I was redeemed from them. 
that there were struggles, but I overcame them. That's the hero. Now, the second kind of common archetype is the victim, right? And we talk about the victim mentality a lot, but for the sake of this, it's the same as the hero. It's the same start as the hero, rather. The victim mentality says, yeah, there were hard times. There were challenges. I worked hard. I tried, but I, I can't ever end up on top. I can't ever overcome. It just feels like there was a hard time and then another hard time comes. And I try hard and I work hard and I'm a hard worker, but there's just challenge after challenge after challenge. That's the victim self-narrative. They never overcome it. The third is one that I think is very interesting and I think that it probably a lot of people in here may have the same self-narrative which is the narrative of the healer. That their entire story, they see themselves as service, of service to someone. That helping other people is the way to worth. That serving other people is the way to meaning and satisfaction. So they say yes too much, they give too much, they attract takers, all right? This is what happens, is that I uh, struggle with boundaries, right? Because of this self-narrative, that I need to help other people in order to to be worth something. There are a lot of them. There are a lot of different self-narratives, but being able to identify it and then be able to identify it in another person is a type of connection that you, it's, it's very deep and it's very hard to get to, but it's not impossible. So when I was thinking about social skills, connecting, how to do this, there's so many things that I could go over. Conflict resolution, like there's so many things in this huge bucket. But one thing I think is very important is the power of bids. Have any of you heard of this? I feel like, okay, cool. So Dr. John Gottman, you may have heard of him. Dr. John and Julie Gottman of the Gottman Institute study marriages, right? Um, and I think that this concept of bids is not just in marriage, but it's in friendships. It's in any type of connection because Dr. Gottman refers to bids as the fundamental unit of emotional communication. It's how we measure our emotional communication. So Dr. Gottman in his research, like the whole Gottman Institute is incredible. They came up with this idea of the four horsemen of marriage, which you should probably go look at. It's just cool. Um, but they can predict divorce up to 92% accuracy. And one of the most powerful units and powerful measurements is bids, because bids can be small or big, verbal, nonverbal, but they're just simply requests to connect, right? So they may take the form of an expression, a question, physical touch, they could be funny, they could be serious, they're just bids, they're just a request for connection. For example, someone might say, hey, what happened uh, with that situation at work with your manager? Do you wanna talk about your plans this weekend? Bids, all right? Holding your hand, bid. Patting you on the head, bid. I don't know, a wink, bid, right? All these are bids, but bids are subtle because people are afraid to be vulnerable and people are afraid to ask for connection. You see this a lot, I think, even outside of even your marriage because you feel a little more safe or a little more comfortable, but it's basically just people begging you like, hey, connect with me, please. Hey, you know, bids are so, so subtle. Ask a question, tell a story, right? And bids are hopeful for connection and return, but it's a whole lot less scary than saying, hey, will you connect with me? And being denied and people saying, no, no, no. 
So I'd rather do something subtle. So doc, uh, Dr. Gottman says you can respond to bids in three ways. You can turn towards them, acknowledge them, turn away from them, or turn against them. All right, so when, let's say, uh, we'll just say our spouse for now, but when your spouse is reading their email and they just sigh, they're making a bid. Now you could turn towards them and say, hey, what's wrong? But imagine you are, I don't know, cleaning your kitchen and your spouse says, hey, how's your day? You could pause and look up and respond and tell them about if you had a good day or a bad day. That's turning towards. Turning against or turning away would be just ignoring them or just, it's fine. Turning away, turning against would be like, why are you trying to interrupt me? I'm really busy right now. Right? So why do bids matter? Well, because they're the basis of trust and connection. Right? Gottman found that there's, this is the critical difference between people who are masters or disasters in connections. If you pay attention to people giving you bids, or do you turn away from them? So in marriage, masters turn towards each other 86% of the time. Disasters turned, turned away from each other 72% of the time. So nobody's perfect at this. And some people think that they could just like put their friendships, their, you know, their marriage on ice and then just thaw it out every once in a while. That like my one time coffee date with this person or whatever is going to make up for all the small bids that I kind of rejected. And that's not true. Right, that the small things are really important, right? It's the small things, the small like phrase, like, hey, I was thinking about you. It's the small connections that matter in the long run. Bids can be super short, very simple, but they hold a lot of power. And the key is to make as many bids as you can. And when you notice people giving you bids, you take them. All right, sometimes it could be annoying, right? Sometimes you're probably thinking, man, this is exhausting. That was a bid, great. He's saying he wants to connect with you. <laughs> he wants to be your friend. <laughs> so when somebody constantly is turning away from our bids, they get, we get frustrated, right? We get frustrated if we're constantly reaching out, somebody's always ignoring us, somebody's always giving us a cold shoulder. Right? But the lesson we have to learn is to make small bids every day. Be intentional about it. It doesn't have to be this great big thing, but being intentional about making connections is paying attention and turning towards people. Really, that's it. That, that social skill, that charisma, if you want, <laughs> you build it by not caring about yourself that much. About being like, okay, I'm making bids to other people. I'm paying attention to the bids that they're giving me. I'm paying attention to how people want to connect with me, and I want to connect with other people. So I hope that you guys learned at least one thing from these three lessons um, that help you to even develop skills within yourself, but then also develop skills that help your relationships in any capacity. So, all right, thank you. Thank you.